Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Alarm, alarm. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland, of course. And the sharp-eared among you, you've probably been to tell from the sound of the room we're in that we're not in our normal spot. We're not, I'm not in my office and you're not in your um, man cave, your Stengun-lined man cave in Wiltshire. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's a slightly different ambience here. So, uh, Jim, where are we? What are we doing? Who are we here to see? Well, we're here at, um, at one of the finest places in the UK, particularly if you're a historian. It is the National Archives. For those who are a bit longer in the tooth, we'll remember the it Public as Record Office, the, the PRO. Record, the yeah. PRO. But, but the acronym for it now, if you're doing your footnotes at the end of the, end of the book, is now TNA. So it's the National Archives with a T, a capital T. Wonderful. Anyway, we're joined by Dr... Will Butler, um, <laughs> and you're the head of, of, of modern documents, specialising in military. When does modern Useful start, Will? When does modern start? Thank you very much for, for having me on. Oh, no, thanks for having us, because we've come to see you, more importantly. I mean, so <laughs> yes, yes. It's very much that way round. Um, yeah. uh, well, when's the, when does modern begin? Uh, 1782, with the creation of the Foreign Office and the Home Office. Well, I would have gone 1968, you know, from, oh, really? when, I was, from when I was born, you know. <laughs> That's modern. <laughs> Could have pin it to something Everybody concrete. Else is history. There is no universe. There's a meaniverse, <laughs> basically. <laughs> I mean, it's lovely being here. I, I, I remember so well. The first time I ever came here was when I was doing work on the Malta book. And the first document I looked at was the logbook for HMS Upholder. The submarine, British submarine yeah. operating out of Malta, Wanklin and Co. And I remember back in the day, you couldn't photograph anything. And you had to annotate everything with a pencil and it took me literally a week just to do that. And now you turn up. I've just ordered up four documents this morning. You take a picture on your phone. And take a picture on your phone. Job done. Half an hour. Bish, bash, Amazing. Bosh, well, I first came here in 1980. 
for oh yes on your project my history project for my o level where I, d- I inevitably and the regular listener will stare into the middle distance now about the battle of arnhem and i pulled out the <laughs> battle diaries and so it begins and, 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 and read the battle diaries that of course were in all the books but actually to hold the thing and see the thing and 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 watch the you know, watch the drama play out. Although those some of those diaries were written up afterwards, but but that's not the point. You've got the you've got the item, you know, in your hand. It's incredible. Yeah, and, and the war diaries yeah, they're one of my favourite collections that, yeah. that we have. Are the Second World War uh, war diaries the the kinds of material that you can find in there uh, that you weren't anticipating? It's yeah. incredible what finds its way in those diaries beyond the the kind of day to day diary entries, the yeah. the operational side of things. But yeah, it's. I, I'm never bored, to put it that way. It's always exciting. So how does one become, you know, head curator, modern, military? How, do, how, have, you, how have you, are you a historian by trade or an archivist by trade? What's uh, the- I'm a historian by right. trade. So, and I think the, sh- the short answer is by accident, um, right. uh, how, how I end up here. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly a historian by trade, uh, not an archivist. We've got some fantastic uh, archivists here, uh, fantastic colleagues who who, who specialise much more in, in that kind of area. But I'm very much a, a historian of the, the 19th and 20th century British Army in, in particular. And went to university, did my PhD, uh, worked as a university lecturer for a while. And my uh, PhD was on the amateur military tradition in Ireland. So I was very interested in things like the militia in the 19th century, the Imperial Yeomanry during the South African War, Volunteer Training Corps, Home Guard, all the way up to the Second World War. So that that was kind of my focus, and, and Ireland being the the backdrop, if you like, to to a lot of that. Um, and then I worked as a university lecturer for for a little while, and and then found my way here doing lots of the public facing things, which are you know just incredibly exciting to be able to communicate my love of history, the you know the records that we have here to massive audiences and it's such a such a privilege to be able to do that well there is something very exciting about touching original documents i think you know it's a real, there's the pen that you know the ink that was signed used signature of churchill or whatever it might be you know it's 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 there's that real tactile link to the past isn't it and that's that's brilliant so before we get into what we're here to talk about in particular um how does it work here how to the uninitiated what what do you do i mean we're, so we're in queue so we're south of the river you get the train to to queue or you the tube to queue gardens and you walk or you you and there's a you could drive it there's a car park but then what and, and then and then there's this amazing building with a lake and it looks like a kind of sort of modern university yes, it feels campus. very like you're on a campus here a yeah. fortress almost yeah, well <laughs> yes so, 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 so then so then you what do you do you register because I remember when I came in you know in the 80s I had to have a you know I'd left from my headmaster as a, as a reference and I, we had to wait for that to have happened and then I turned up with my letter and, then, and and I remember thinking you know I'm being allowed into somewhere sort of secret super special they're kind of like oh right okay in you come uh, uh, d- d- well, presumably that was at Somerset House wasn't it no it was here was it I here to queue yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, the building opened in the, in the 1970s, so it yeah. has, has been here a little while. Yeah, I came here by train on a, I can't remember, on a Sunday or something and, and spent the, and I remember my history teacher thinking, he's taking this a bit too seriously. This is just <laughs> only a, a no level. So, it's only an O level, get, get a grip, buddy. But, 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 so, but, but you, you've got the bug, haven't you? I've completely been bitten by it. But, but Will, so tell us how it works. What is, if, if someone says to themselves, I want to go to the, the National Archive, I want to pull something out, where do you, st- uh, because obviously you're modern, but there's before modern, which is called what? 
uh, we have medieval and early modern teams as well. Our earliest document is uh, dates to the 11th century. So right. that gives you a bit of an idea. Okay, anyway. great. So, so from there, let, let, if you want to come here and pull something out of the archive, um, how do you do that? And what, uh, what's the scope as well? So where's the edge? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the, the key is that anybody can turn up to the building if they've got if they've got two forms of ID with them, they can come from anywhere in the world and come to a computer terminal and order their documents uh, on this side of things. And then there's a reading room on the other side from where we're sitting this, uh, this afternoon and their documents will be waiting for them in a pigeonhole ready for them to, to read. And in fact, my documents will be ready for me in uh, well, about an hour's time. Incredible. Yeah, so you're just called, waiting for me in 41B. But you're, 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 you're well used to coming here. It's it's an it is an amazing place, and it's it's amazing how often you see the same people here as well. Right, quite a lot of sort of blokes of a certain age with regulars, yeah, sort of retired gents. What's pulled out? Which period is the busiest? What you know, and what type of document are people looking at the most? So th this isn't me just saying it, but our military records are some of the most <laughs> popular uh, records that we hold. A lot of them obviously are digitised. You know, if you're interested in the First World War, a lot of those war diaries are digitised. The surviving service service records are digitized but we also have an awful lot of military records that aren't and they tend to be some of our most popular record series so uh i already mentioned the second world war war diaries they're certainly one of our most popular sets of records as are muster rolls and pay lists from the 19th century british army as well as well as things like officer service records from the first world war uh, as well so like i say i'm not just saying it <laughs> um from a military point of view and our military teams are some of our busiest for sure in terms of the interest but then given given conscription a, a vast chunk of the population passes through basically pass, literally passes through government as it were or through the government if, if you want to look at it like that so it's a great way if you're looking for your you're looking for your ancestors to echolocate someone is to, is via the military because the chances are so in one way or another, they've been caught up in it by, by, you know, not one world war, but two, you know, there's a there's two generations of people who you can, who you can place through, through these records, right? Absolutely. And, you know, th those records and also the census records, which we also hold. So, you know, again, for, for family historians, those interested in kind of tracing the, the history of their ancestors in that way, absolutely the, the way to do that for, for a lot of people beyond the census or electoral roles are service in the military ultimately but for those who want to research their families in the second world war personnel files haven't been released into the public domain yet so they are starting to they're starting to which so, is an exciting moment but up and you know until they all are you've still got to go and apply for them through the ministry of defense and there's a there's a if you just google that's more difficult ministry of defense personnel records or military records or whatever it will just immediately come up with a link and you have to sort of apply for it and so 20 quid or whatever it is they, the records are on their way here to, to tna exciting. and the first uh batch of those will be uh, will be digitized towards the end of next year so do watch out for that so how many records are there here though what, how big is it and and if say you just said you're about to receive another batch how does that work we always need space um for for <laughs> records in the repository and 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 that uh, surprises people i think sometimes you know we are the official uk government archives obviously increasingly we get records that are born digital if you yeah. like from from government but we still receive the majority of our records are uh physical pieces records they're pieces of paper they're folders um you know I our catalog contains 11 million records uh, in the entry but it's a lot bigger than that 
And as I say, you know, uh, there, there are certain transfers, you know, the service records in particular, which are massively increasing yeah. the amount of material that and we I, have. I mean, is there a, are there satellite sites for, you know, storage and stuff? Or? So we do have an offsite storage facility right. uh, in an old salt mine uh, in Cheshire. So that's... Um, where that you is. You never knew. That's brilliant. <laughs> is I that because the salt sucks out the moisture? Just don't park your car there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's got well, a well away. Yeah. Um, you just go back to your point about, about the uh, the war diaries, and this is uh, the unit war diaries. Uh, you're so right about the sort of hidden gems you find in those, because quite often they're, they're written up, and it's a landscape, not for portrait form. So you get this sort of, you know, full scat page. Sometimes they're handwritten, sometimes they're typed up. Um but what you get is quite often you get little sort of extra bits at the end. And I remember when I was doing all that research on Headley Verity, the cricketer, the breakthrough for me was included in the war diary was a hand sketch of the dispositions of the first Green Howards on the Catania Plain. And you could match the hand sketch with Google Earth. And that's what enabled you to enable me to kind of pinpoint where he'd been. And had it not been for that hand sketch being half decent and decent enough to be able to match it up with Google Earth, yeah. you'd never know. Gosh. Well, there you go. Right. So what are we here to talk about? A new exhibition that's opens that's, at the end of January, doesn't it? Second of February. Second of February. <laughs> that's the day my tour starts. Ooh. So thank God I've got a sneak preview. Yeah, you exactly. Know, jump the queue. And it's, it's called Great Escapes. And it's about the experience of prisoners of war. And civilian internees and civilian, as well. And civilian, so the so the the interned, as it were, in in the Second World War, and in Europe, and in the Far East, and also here. Yes, because Germans, Germans and here, Italians. and then aliens, as they were as they were called. Where do you begin with a, a subject like that? Because it's enormous. I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people. It is enormous. The easier option would have been to choose either prisoners of war or civilian internees as our focal point. But we decided to to work on both. And I think, you know, one of the really interesting things about the records that we have at TNA is you might often assume that they're top down, if you see what I mean. They're government level documents. Uh, so you'll never get that kind of personal touch. But actually, what our records show, uh, and if you look closely enough, beyond you know, service records, beyond prisoner of war records, is we have a lot of personal records, personal accounts of individuals' experiences during this period. We decided and kind of landed on the name Great Escapes. Obviously, it's a, a play to some extent on The Great Escape, and the exhibition does conveniently coincide with the 80th anniversary of the of the great escape from Salaglyph 3 but that isn't the focus what what we were really interested in is telling the story of those physical escapes of course you know those stories that perhaps people are a little more familiar with when it when it comes to that certainly prisoner of war experience but what we actually wanted to do is look at the variety of ways that people sought to escape the kind of reality of their captivity both from a mili you know, military personnel and civilian personnel. So I, I suppose, broadly speaking, the mental escapes, the, you know, the activities that are going on within camps 
what people are actually doing to deal with their day-to-day reality really well there's a very nice feature in the in the exhibition of a guy from i think he's from jamaica he's taken prisoner in in france in 1940 he's saying i've decided to become a clairvoyant so that i can still communicate with you all yeah, I mean, telephone you whenever i want, <laughs> telephone whenever I want. really funny absolutely and you know that's, so that's just one snippet you know in his letters he talks about he studied for a law degree he completed a law degree whilst a prisoner of war well why not you might um, as, well. as well so it's it's you know you have those, those yeah those, those really interesting things. Stalags are sort of universities, aren't they, in, 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 a, in a sense? But, but, but also, like all, all these things in the Second World War, I mean, nothing's a straight line. Uh, and the experience that you have, you know, being a German, a prisoner of the Germans, for example, in 1940, you know, where food is comparatively plentiful and, you know, nothing too awful's happened. And it's uh, sort of they're winning. Of yeah, 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 <laughs> and they're winning. You know, they can afford to be a little bit magnanimous. It's sort of okay, but by, you know, second half of 1943, it's absolutely horrendous because, of course, Germany's starving and prisoners of war are kind of quite low down on the kind of priority list. Um, so people are getting very hungry, conditions bad, disease comes with, with, with bad conditions. And then, of course, you've got these awful marches, particularly from the camps that are being uh, escaping the advancing Russians back end of 1944, beginning of 1945, you know, across this sort of bleak winter Eastern Europe landscape. I mean, really, really tough. And it could be absolutely brutal. Yeah, absolutely. And you can trace that story through our collections here at TNA. Uh, you know, ultimately, you know, one of the things that's obviously happening are you know things like Red Cross inspections of a lot of these camps, both in the UK, but also in Europe, and to a much lesser extent um, in East Asia as well, and trace exactly those kinds of problems and issues, you know, the fairly or decent enough accommodation and food, medical attention, et cetera, et cetera, early on in the war for allied prisoners of war in particular. But then, you know, by 1944, early 45, as you say, tracing some of that much more kind of challenging situation that prisoners find them, themselves in. You know, you, you have accounts whereby, you know, individuals are playing sport a lot in 1941, 42. Right. And then, you know, you literally have these reports that are saying by the end of 43 into 44 and 45, you know, this kind of activity doesn't happen in the same way as it used to. And primarily because food is scarce and people just don't have the physical capacity to play football every day or, or, or look the like weekend. Okay, like Sylvester Stallone in goal. Exactly. But also, I mean, it, but it's not a straight line in Southeast Asia either, is it? And, and you know, when you're a prisoner of the Japanese, um, you know, my understanding is that there was no kind of code within the Japanese that said you've got to kind of treat all prisoners absolutely brutally. It, it, it was sort of culturally inferred, but but obviously different camp commanders were... Behaved differently. Behaved differently. There, was no, there wasn't a sort of rule book. There wasn't a sort of consistency of it. So you you, you could get away with it. I mean, I remember interviewing some people who, who were who were prisoners. I think they ended up being prisoners on a, on a Japanese home island somewhere or somewhere. Maybe they were even on Japan itself. The nightmare for them had been the crossing in the boat, yeah, you know, the, that the had been the absolute worst thing. And and they'd had some, you know, it wasn't wasn't a, a picnic by any stretch of imagination once they were in the camp, but it certainly wasn't kind of, you know, Thai-Burma railway kind of conditions. Yeah, absolutely. And, and quite often, yeah, exactly. The most lethal part was the journey. Uh, as you say, you know, uh, probably most famous, famously, the Lisbon Maru is the the kind of allied uh, hell ship, as, as they were, were known, which was sunk by... 
an allied submarine i think so uh, you know killed a, a quite a high number of, of allied prisoners of war and and that was on a journey to mainland mainland japan to a camp in japan from hong kong so you know often that was the most perilous part of of the experience right well should we should we take a break and then look at some documents should yeah. we do that good plan. yeah okay we'll be back in a second I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk here at TNA, the National Archive. And Will, you've now we've talked about this. Let's actually look at look at some of what you've got stuff you've got here for us. Yeah, absolutely. So what we've got in front of us here are some records specifically to do with prisoners of war and to a, a lesser extent civilian internees uh, in Southeast Asia. And what they do to some extent is build up a picture about what uh, the British government in particular is trying to do during the war around ensuring they know exactly what's going on uh, when it comes to prisoners of war. But what they're having to do is piece together information in a much more uh, piecemeal way than, for example, in Europe. You know, Japan doesn't follow the Geneva Convention in the same way as nations do, uh, as Germany and, and Britain, for is, example. Is it a signatory do. to it, though? It, it never ratified it. Right. So it doesn't. So there are some elements whereby it does, uh, Japan does follow certain parts of the convention. So it allows some Red Cross inspections, mm. for example. And we actually have some photographs here on the table taken during some of those inspections. 
but allied governments are still really having to piece together that information they're not getting the consistent reports back they're not getting consistent information from individuals within camps you know ultimately most individuals can't send or receive much in the way of post and, and letters so they really are relying on lots of different places in order to try and piece together that information and then you know ultimately then trying to communicate that to those who have relatives who are who are in captivity and are they worried about too much bad news because if you're dealing with the families do you do you want to say to them they're being held in hellish conditions and may not survive i mean there's there's surely that that consideration as a government to make isn't there Absolutely. I think, you know, there's certainly an element uh, to that. One of the pieces of correspondence we have in front of us here talks about the the British government almost, but not quite being in denial, but not recognising the severity of the situation. Yes. Whether that's the case or whether it's actually being pragmatic in, in that yeah. approach is, is perhaps, yeah. you know, uh, the, way, the way to think about it. So this is an extract from the New Statesman and Nation, a weekend review dated August the 12th, 1944, headed Prisons of Japan. And who, who wrote this? So this is uh, so a few individuals. Uh, Hunt, J.W. Burnford, W.B. Bennett. And it says, Sir, may we draw your attention to some little known facts about the terrible situation of some 300,000 European internees in prisons in Japanese prison camps? The worst camps are situated in three districts, Hong Kong, the Malayan jungle and Thailand. Therefore, generalizations about camp conditions based on those in Peiping most other parts of China, Shanghai and Japan itself cannot be applicable to them. So they're, they're basically saying, we found out, we, we know what's going on and the, the government isn't, isn't across it properly. And just below here it says, there seems to be a lamentable state of wishful thinking about the real conditions on the part of our government. Yeah. So again, kind of furthering that, that point. Yeah, the complacent statements that are made from time to time are used by the Japanese as propaganda. Possibly also as a reason for denying neutral inspectors access to the southern camps and for minimising the urgency of parcel deliveries. Right. So, the, so how do these how do these guys know though? I mean, that's the, the interesting thing. They, or are they are they being authorised? Sometimes government does that thing where it gets someone to it gets someone to write a column, doesn't it? So they can fly a kite and they can see what the response is like. Because one of the interesting things about the Second World War is that a lot of politics is conducted in the usual, actually in the usual manner. Even though you have a national government, they're still doing. There's still opinion pieces in the newspapers. The newspapers will disagree with government policy and all that sort of stuff in a way that I think, I don't know that, I don't know that people necessarily have an appreciation of that. They think, oh, it's the war, so everyone behaves themselves mm-hmm. in the way they express opinion and the way politics is operated. That's just not the case, is it? No, no, absolutely, uh, absolutely not, especially on some of these ki- kinds of issues. And, and again, what, you know, quite often in these sets of files, that are obviously created by the British government or indeed compiled by the British government yeah. is you you get a piece of correspondence that will say, you know, this letter is from so-and-so who has a relative who is, who, yeah. you know, who knows someone who is in this camp and they've managed to get this piece of information out and this is what they're saying about yeah. about the situation and, and about what's happening. Uh, and that's, and, and again, you know, that that's what the government is trying to do in, uh, again, you know, mainly just, just to try and find out, you know, there, there's a lot of intelligence that's also happening from a military point of view, you know, as you might expect, military intelligence. Uh, yeah, but, but generally speaking, Will, I mean, how, how much do people back in the UK know of the, of the conditions for prisoners of the Japanese? Not very well, I think. Is, I mean, that's is amazing. The, so they is have the no, it's at the end of the war, it is genuinely a surprise to find all these sort of skeletons coming out. 
sort yeah, of emaciated people. Yeah, absolutely. But it, but you know, even not being fully aware of the situation in in Europe uh, as well, right. particularly towards the end so of it's the not war, just Japan. As, it, as it's worsening, you know, that that's kind of as you say the the general rule being that you know the war is not going the way of Germany and Japan, and so the conditions for prisoners of war and internees is inevitably going to be bad. I mean, this is amazing, isn't it? Because this is this is a document of. Presumably a POW camp hospital. It is exactly that, yes. And I'm just looking at this guy, Albert J. Shadwell of um, Lynch Overton, Basingstoke Hant. So they very carefully put in the um, where they're from. There's another guy from Number 8, Strawberry Bank, Alfwaite, Nottinghamshire. But Albert Shadwell, his... I mean, crikey. So he's got beriberi fever, malaria, septic sores, and, check this, scrotal dermatitis. I mean, just one of those sounds pretty bad, to be honest. But all four—that's yeah, a—he's in a bad a, way, and I imagine a bad way. The, the medicine on offer isn't brilliant either. So, absolutely not antibiotics and 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 again, what you get—you get an awful lot of improvisation. So we've got um, again quite a large number of records of the medical treatment that is happening uh, and taking place for for prisoners of war. So there are doctors, there are medical personnel who are improvising artificial appliances for those who've had to have an amputation, for example. They are distilling alcohols, you know, literally creating medicines from their raw ingredients uh, to some some degree as well in order to, you know, supplement the very limited amount of medical equipment and care that they're receiving from from their captors. And those those four... This is just absolutely horrendous. I'm just looking at it now. I I mean, you know, anemia, um, diarrhoea, dermatitis... Quite a lot of people seem to have scrotal dermatitis. Quite a lot of people have septic sores, tropical ulcers, dengue, jaundice, ulcers, scrotal dermatitis on another chap, diarrhoea, malaria, beriberi, beriberi, diarrhoea, bronchitis, gastritis, dysentery, malaria. That's just one guy. No, one guy's got appendicostomy, enteritis, bronchitis, gastritis, dysentery, and malaria. I mean, flipping heck. This guy down here, Donald Smith of Claremont Street, Wycliffe in Yorkshire, he dies on the 5th of September 1944 at 10.30. Chronic emphysema, bronchopleural, I can't see that, and just exhaustion. So he's just, he's just, he's done. He's done. Uh, it, it, it is, and you can just, um, you, you, I mean, series of people, just, it just conjures up a, a kind of image of lots of people just suffering horrifically and you just imagine what the stench must have been like the kind of inability to to keep basic hygiene but everyone kind of well and people not being strong enough to fight infections because they're malnourished is of course that's what that's saying yes yeah for sure it's it's about the limited diet the lack of clean water yeah and then when becoming ill the lack of adequate medical attention so there's another guy john a streets of 104 adelaide broad East Cow's Isle of Wight. He dies on the 8th, 14th of August, 1944, of amoebic dysentery and beriberi fever. I mean, no one's got a single thing. I mean, it's it's all... I mean, what is amazing is how many people do seem to survive. I mean, the number of deaths is comparatively like, small. it looks like everyone went to the doctor, though. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And this is, this is just one of, of many volumes yeah, of, of yeah. these kinds of these, hospital admissions that we have. Are these, oh, there's a Murray. Look, look up the Murray. Yeah, so I always do look, yeah, yeah look at the Murray. Colin, WA. He lived in, down in Kent. Right. Tropical ulcers, malaria, 
chronic malaria and beriberi. Okay, let's see if there's any Hollands. That's no right. Ho- oh, no. Isn't that a Holland? At the yeah, time? Holland. Albert A.O. Holland. Doesn't say what he means. It just says Let's gone. Let's look It just says gone. Gone. He's gone. <laughs> gone. But, I mean, oh, are they, they, these, these are being kept by the medical personnel who, who are in the camps. And are these then used as evidence as presented to the war office and said, look at the situation we found ourselves oh in. my god this guy's got malaria diarrhea typhus tropical ulcers beriberi and scrotal dermatitis how on earth did he survive that's astonishing crikey it's a sort of catalogue of human misery isn't it it is and and absolutely that's that's exactly what these records are used for is is in that post-war kind of investigations of war crimes ultimately yeah. so you know what they're doing what what the authorities are doing when it comes to these investigations are then starting to interview individuals who will talk about, you know, there are post-liberation questionnaires for prisoners of war that are taken both in Europe and, and in Southeast Asia, whereby prisoners are specifically asked, did you witness any mistreatment of prisoners of war you know and you might imagine some people spend a lot of time writing quite a lot of detail yeah. and then there would be follow-up then by military intelligence to investigate that but but also let's not you know kid ourselves i mean the japanese troops themselves aren't immune from all this stuff i mean yeah, well, uh, and also by kind of 1943 44 where you know it's 88 percent of their gdp on defense there's not yeah. an awful lot of room left for for medicine no absolutely absolutely yeah. not and, and it's and the nature of the, that part of the world, is the, yeah. you know, the climate and the humidity and, the, mm-hmm. and you're living outdoors. It's, it's, going, it's going to get you. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, let's move along. What, what are these here, these photographs here? So, People with beards. <laughs> they do have beards, yeah. So we have a real collection here of photographs taken. So there's two, two batches of photographs, if you like. The, the top batch here are some post-liberation uh, photographs of individuals. And again, they give you an idea of the kind of state that a lot of these guys are Well, he's got a size 24 waist, hasn't he? Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and, and you get a bit of an idea about their diet. And then the, the second lot batch of photographs are those propaganda images that that letter that we mentioned a moment ago were, were talking about, that, you know, they're photographs of Red Cross inspections and there are photographs of prisoners exercising and tending to allotments and, you know, generally looking like they're having not too bad a time it's a holiday camp basically um you know and 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 that's what is being released to authorities i suppose in um that theater that what you haven't got there's any well you've got very very few japanese competents who are prisoners because they tend not to very 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 few a handful literal handfuls of people Mm -hmm. so you can't do a kind of reciprocal propaganda oh gosh sorry i've just seen this oh go on then Okay, so you've got a picture of, they've basically all got bare feet. Uh, one of them's just wearing nothing but um, a loincloth. Uh, he's got one egg, leg missing, and it says, Major McCurd, Indian Medical Services from Ontario, Ontario, Canada, was captured by the Japs, became hospital surgeon in the prison camp. With one of his patients, Corporal J. Usher, from Wrexham, North Wales, whose leg was successfully amputated, although Major McCard was not permitted any anaesthetic supply for the job. And he's to say they're skin and bones. Wow. And as I, you know, and, and these aren't all necessarily combat injuries as well that are resulting in, in amputations. They're, you know, the work that they're being forced to do uh, is incredibly dangerous. And so there's a kind of, a, I suppose, a constant flow of those kinds of inju- injuries that surviving medical personnel are having to, to deal yes, with. Yes, because well. you get a you get a graze, it goes septic, you get gangrene, leg comes off. Absolutely. 
And what's amazing is how they all, you know, they're sort of squatting down, aren't they? They're used to not sitting on chairs. They're all on their haunches. And as I say, you can see the kind of condition that, that they're in by the end here. So again, you know, what the British government then is doing upon liberation, if you like, and, and when then prisoners are making their long journey back to the back to the UK, is they're providing an awful lot of information about diet and what prisoners should and shouldn't eat yeah. and drink. And yeah. because Again, you know, they've been so malnourished for a long time. And again, this is also the case in Europe by the end of the war that, you know, there, there is a what, what to do and what not to do with yeah. diets. You know, these official publications that every prisoner is given uh, that says you should not, you know, drink too much beer. You should not eat this. Don't have rich food. Don't have sweet food. It's, it's kind of that very, very basic diet. And then it's also providing material for relatives as well to help prisoners and support prisoners. Uh, settle back into civil society as well. And that was probably something that surprised me, I think, when looking at our, our records, the, the kind of work that is carried out by the Allied authorities around resettlement and ensuring, you know, recognising the psychological impact of... You know, we're talking at least half a million, if you include the people from the British soldiers in Europe and then in the Far East, it's half a million people, basically, who then come back into leave the military as well, come back into civil society, who've been incarcerated. And you, I, I've just, how does that express itself in 50s, 50s and 60s and 70s culture? You know, if only in attitudes to prison, you know, because people who've, people who've been incarcerated have a different view on it necessarily, don't they? Or, or, or have, so I'm just I'm wondering what the social sort of bow wave of this might be as much as anything else. I don't want to, I wonder if anyone's written about that. Well, maybe someone who's listening knows. And we'll yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Dig something up. And these are these propaganda pictures you're talking about. So there's chaps doing exercise and then sewing and, and generally having a sort of constructive... Oh, look, they're fishing, those, those officers. They're having a good time. But both sides do this, don't they? They're fair, entirely sort of standard routine propaganda, isn't it? Absolutely. And there, yeah, so this is a photograph of an inspection with a Red yeah. Cross inspector here. Who must know perfectly what's going on. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you see they're all stamped by the yes, Red Cross by the Red as Cross. well, these photographs. Who, who occupy this in interesting space where they can only really go where they're allowed to go yeah. um, and are used as a seal of, seal of approval and are being exploited. Uh, I think that's, that's part of the sort of the mosaic, isn't it? Gosh, these are incredible, though. Uh, what we can do if we wanted to yeah, move yeah, over yeah. to, Come on, to the Euro table. I'm quite, quite oh, taken by this as well. A handbook for the information of relatives and friends of prisoners of war and civilians in Japanese or Japanese-occupied territory. You've still got to pay two pence for it, though. It's not terribly helpful, but it does disperse, um, dispel one myth, which is that while in turn merchant seamen are credited with the sums they would otherwise have continued to receive as wages, less the amount that would have been deducted for income tax. As long as they're still paying tax, that's important. <laughs> but, but there's that myth, isn't there, that once you're a seaman, once you're kind of, you know, you're, you're parted from your ship, you, the pay stops. But obviously, that's not the case. But even so, I mean, it's um, it's not exactly saying. I mean, I imagine this was going to say, you know, when your relative comes back, you might find him a little bit changed, and you know, be patient with him. None of that. And there are other handbooks that do that okay. to, to some extent, I must say. And then there are other kind of more practical things. So um, you find publications which talk about how you address a letter right. to your prisoner of war, what information is required, what format it needs to, to go in. So there is some kind of practical element to You do hear stories about people coming back and insisting on sleeping on the floor and all that mm -hmm. sort of yes. yeah. can't cope, can't nails. cope with the, yeah. with the bed anymore. 
uh, which, which again speaks to profound psychological effect and and I mean damage that's the right word even but like the footprint of this experience is really powerful mm-hmm. absolutely and and, what, and like I say what surprised me is is actually how much thought the authorities are putting into yeah. that psychological yeah. Whether they had a solution for that is, an, is another question, but they are thinking about those but kinds I think, of things. But I think that, that that comes across... We've been talking about combat fatigue a lot, or battle fatigue, or whatever name you want to call it, because after all, the, the name keeps changing and, then, and the diagnosis changes with it, and then the people who are diagnosed tend to keep up with the diagnosis as well. It exhibits itself in that way. Actually, a lot of the ideas in the 40s seem strikingly modern, Whereas we'd think, oh, it's 80 years ago. What do they know? They don't know anything like we, we do about psychology and psychiatry. And actually, there's a, there's a lot of really neat, what we'd see as progressive thinking going on, things being tried out that don't feel like they're from the middle of the last century at all. They feel quite contemporary. That's quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly bears out in the paperwork. Yeah. Anyway. yeah well, <laughs> For you, sure. If anyone knows about the paperwork. <laughs> I'll, keep, I'll keep going on about the paperwork all the time. <laughs> so we've moved on to um, these are images from prisoner of war camps in Central Europe, essentially. And hopefully gives us an idea about kind of thinking about the comparisons between those those experiences so you know we saw a moment ago those red cross photographs about inspections mm. we have whole volumes of red cross inspections for individual camps uh, you know in our collection here there's hundreds and hundreds of pages the the one we have here for example is our inspection reports from Salagate B Lambsdorff uh, the kind of one of one of the more well, certainly one of the bigger camps we have photograph albums they're postcards actually Stalagliff 1. I mean, look at this funeral. Funeral of Sergeant J.C. Shaw, Stalagliff 1. It's, he's on a carriage. There's horses. There's toppers. horses. There's a, there's a man in a top hat. You know, uh, uh, there's mourners and everything. I mean, you'd, if you didn't know that was happening in Germany, you'd, you'd never know, right? You'd just assume that was, that was in Britain. There's a picture of Sergeant J.C. Shaw in his casket. That's Next all. to another photograph of people playing ice hockey. Yes, of course, yes. And then, and then, well, I mean, that's not how he met his end. No. Yeah. <laughs> and then German honour guard. I mean, it's, I mean, it's extraordinary. And that's girls, girls, show, girls. Review girls, show. Yep. Many pictures of girls, girls, girls. Yeah, I, the 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 mini theatre, the the, num- the sheer number of theatre productions is is quite incredible. <laughs> Merchant of Venice. Yeah, and and the elaborate costumes that a lot of these photographs, you know, and again, it's perhaps an element you don't think about when it comes to the prisoner of war experience. You know, these costumes are being made within the camps by prisoners. Well, Merchant of Venice is Stalaglyph 3. Yes, yeah. So th- this album is a mixture of Stalaglyph 1 and Stalaglyph 3 photographs, I should say. So Very sophisticated sets. So presumably they were sort of half-inching them to... Well, so they're making their escape. Absolutely. So they're making both, at the, you know, they're making costumes and at the same time also making civilian clothing to aid those who are escaping. Bums on Broadway, Stalagliff 3, 1942. Aladdin, Panto. Amazing. But as you say, this is before the, the war turns. Well, so. yeah, but this is 43, look. Somewhere in this album, there is a, a innocuous photograph of the actor Peter Butterworth as well right. on the stage. Uh, <laughs> who was who was a prisoner in Salaglyph One and Salaglyph Three? Sports Day. I and mean, this is a hard contrast with um, 
Far East, isn't it? Absolutely. Is and, and of course, these these are prisoner of these are officers yes. uh, in prison of war camps. So well, they don't have the requirement to work in the yeah. same way that other ranks. So other ranks tend to be working probably six days a week yeah. uh, in some nominally at least non-war related work. Uh, but officers have to find things to do, <laughs> and this is kind of certainly an an exhibition of of that within this album. Amazing. Play called for the love Absolutely. of Mike in Cycle Three with you know with a policeman with a proper policeman's helmet and it's surreal though. There's it a element really of surreality to it that it it's definitely that, is. That, and as you say, they have to find stuff to do. So I mean, there is a keep your mind occupied poster there. An arts and crafts exhibition. You know, there's some models of boats and gliders and incredible stuff. One of my favourite uh, examples was from a prisoner who was in one of the Malag and Milag naval um, camps, and they they put on a dinner and show performance over a number of evenings where they they got special permission from the guards to have the show as well as the three course dinner it was a very basic dinner as you might but, expect but nevertheless um but they had permission to to extend their curfew and and also they had to promise that they would uh when it was hosted that no one would attempt to escape <laughs> whilst they were whilst they were hosting it i think so I mean, yeah that's amazing these are absolutely incredible. And, and, and what's, so these are the Red Cross? Yeah, absolutely. So, so around here, so these, as I say, we have an enormous number of Red Cross reports for, for both uh, military, prisoner of war camps, I should say, and also civilian internee camps as well in, in mainland Europe. They are carried out, you know, these, these inspections take place once a month, once every couple of months within each camp, as well as, you know, so this is for Stalagate B, which is one of the bigger camps, but it has a large number of work detachments. So there are groups of prisoners who are not yeah. at the main camp, they're working off in factories or mines or wherever it might be. And so the Red Cross are also inspecting those. And, and you know, again, the conditions can vary for individuals. You have situations where it kind of says, well, there's no recreation space for, for this work detachment or, you know, the, the food is quite poor mainly because the chef in the mess isn't very good. He's not happy in this, in, this inspection. This is report on Stalagate B visited 14th September. This is from uh, late 1944, November 1944. Mm. States, present mixture nationalities creates many inadequacies, general conditions, deteriorated camp infested with bugs and fleas. Majority British prefer sleep outside, owing vermin fumigation apparently ineffective. Mm. And if you're sleeping outside in November 1944, November, it must yeah, be pretty bad inside, wasn't it? Lazarette isolation ward subject to strong complaint by delegate. Well, that's. That's again. That goes back to the kind of lack of straight lines, isn't it? And and again, within the reports, though they're kind of high level reports, what the inspectors are allowed to do is speak to nominated individual prisoners. So you get kind of some personal perspectives, if you like, about experiences. So it's a, a man of confidence, a so-called man of confidence, who can speak to the Red Cross inspector without fear of kind of repercussions for anything that they've said to to the inspector and yeah you know that they're, they're very as you as expect might expect are then quite candid about mm. the situation and mm. but again you get lots of information about the hundreds or you know number of thousands of books that have been donated to these camps or yeah. the sports equipment which have been given to to prisoners uh, or whatever might have been requested by prisoners you know for for a large chunk of the war they're they're kind of getting it yeah. Uh, you know they're they're receiving those yeah. those things 
well, we could we could talk about this forever. We say this a lot on this podcast. Um, well, these these documents are all they're to do with this new exhibition, the, the Great Escapes, which starts on February the second here at the National Archive. February the second runs until the twenty first of July, and the, with a full sort of array of documents telling this same story. So starting with the nineteen twenty nine. Geneva Convention and ending with the 1949 which is I think, quite an interesting way of bracketing <laughs> bracketing things anyway thanks everyone for listening we will see you again very soon um, and we'll be back at the National Archive for another episode shortly cheerio cheerio